Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, targeting HER2, HER3, and TROPE2 in non-small cell lung cancer. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Daiichi Sanko Incorporated. In this episode, Dr. Alexander Spira and Dr. Joshua Sabari continue their discussion on antibody drug conjugates and look at some of the promising trials for non-small cell lung cancer. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors four. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Spira is a medical oncologist in the research department of Virginia Cancer Specialists in Fairfax, Virginia. Dr. Sabari is an assistant professor of medicine in the Department of Medical Oncology at NYU Langone Health Perlmutter Cancer Center, New York. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Spira will begin our discussion. Hi, everyone. So welcome to our second podcast. Uh, now we're going to be talking about antibody drug conjugates targeting non-small cell lung cancer. Again, uh, with Josh Shabari from NYU School of Medicine, thanks for joining me today. I think one of the points right now is in our previous podcast, we talked a lot about some of these new antibody drug conjugates, and now we're going to delve down a little bit more into specific studies. Uh, we talked before about you know, HER2 mutations specifically, some of these uh, HER2 uh, exon 20 mutations, I think is the most common, although there are other ones. Um, there's a few different studies right now. Destiny Lung 1, Destiny Lung 2, as well as some other drugs as well. So Josh, you want to start talking about some of these, I love the names, we're starting to be like the breast cancer world with acronyms here right now, uh, but the Dest- you want to talk about Destiny a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the Destiny Lung 01 study is a phase two study um, initially presented at ESMO and recently you know, published in New England Journal of Medicine and quite impressive data. Uh, so this looked at patients with HER2 alterations uh, specifically HER2 mutations in exon 20. And as we mentioned in the last podcast, there are many alterations that you can see in HER2 amplification, as well as you know protein change level, like overexpression, for example, more commonly seen in uh, breast cancer. But this study, particularly looking at the HER2 uh, sort of uh, um, mutations, patients got um, this drug, the trastuzumab droxetecan, at 6.4 milligrams per kilogram dose. Uh, and the data was quite impressive. So in 91 patients enrolled, objective response rate of 55% with a disease control rate of 92%. So in my opinion, I mean, this is quite impressive data uh, in this setting in an area where we don't have any approved uh, targeted therapies. The median progression-free survival, 8.2 months, uh, and overall survival, 17.8 months. So this has led to uh, a breakthrough designation uh, in this setting. And and Alex, as you mentioned in the last uh, discussion, this is now NCCN recommended. What are your thoughts on how this drug will actually move forward? Is this something that's going to be FDA approved? I mean, to me, you know, it's a huge unmet need. I mean, this is the, what I call, Josh, the the pinnacle of oncology care. You identify a specific target. It's why we do all that uh, NGS, right? You identify a target, you find a response rate. Uh, and if it works, it should be given. So this, to me, there's no doubt there's going to, it's going to be FDA approved. 
We talked a little bit before about some of the side effects. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it again in a second, uh, but the side effects appear to be well tolerated. Remember, this is already an FDA approved drug. So it's already approved in the breast cancer world. So I think the hurdle's a little bit less, but to me, there's no doubt it's going to be approved, presumably in the second line setting. The real question is, is you know, how does it evolve into the frontline setting in combination? We talked a little bit about that on our last podcast, but to me, this seems like a no brainer. You know, it's always interesting that there is always critics of a study and, you know, the critics are going to look at this and go, it was, you know, the meeting response was only eight or nine months and the response rate was, I think, 50, you know, in the 50% range. I mean, it's a targeted therapy. It should be better. And it's amazing, as we talked on our previous podcast, how far we've come, right? I mean, these blow away chemotherapy, you know, I think there's an understanding or an expectation, I should say, that if you have a targeted therapy, the response rate should be, you know, greater than 80% with responses, you know, greater than a year or so, even the second or third line setting. So to me, you know, you know, just again, taking a step back to where I've come from, where this is literally a home run for this patient population with really nothing else out there, especially after first line chemotherapy. Yeah, and Alex, to that point, these patients are heavily pretreated. You know, most of them have received other HER2 inhibitors, right? I mean, including uh, other HER2 inhibitors that are approved in the breast cancer space. So it, it is it is an interesting sort of population and, you know, potentially moving this to the front line in a treatment naive population. Do you expect or would you expect the response rate and the durability of response to be longer? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I do expect it to be longer and as well the durability. I mean, you know, part of it is the, you know, just heavily pretreatment, multiple resistant clones. We've all seen that. Part of it is, again, I've been doing this a long time, you know, as patients evolve into the lung cancer therapy, they have more stuff on their CT scans, which always make the true resist response rates. Again, you can't see us. We're on a podcast. Josh is, Josh is smiling at me. But, you know, you look at these CT scans and the patients responded, but there's still a big mass there. And you always wonder, is this really cancer or is this just atelectatic lung or old radiation? You can never tell, right? So I always tell people that the response rates underestimate what the true benefit is, especially in that second, third, fourth line setting as well. So I think by moving it up, you'll get an advantage on two parts there. But for me, this is a no-brainer. And if I were a patient and I had this, this is what I would want, right? I would want a targeted therapy better than chemo. Uh, we, we touched briefly in our previous podcast about immunotherapy. I don't think either one of us are big immunotherapy fans in this population. And in fact, I'd shy away from using it if I knew a patient had uh, HER2 uh, mutation only because I'm concerned about some of that pulmonary toxicity. Agreed completely. Most savvy patients who are coming to see me in the office with a you know, driver alteration, particularly HER2, are asking for targeted therapies, uh, even in the frontline setting. Alex, how does this compare to some of the other data that we've seen in the HER2 space? Yeah, so to me, I mean, the data has been very mixed over the years because they've always looked at a lot of different things. But to me, this is, uh, you know, much better than any of the other drugs out there. This is probably the best designed clinical study, too. Uh, you know, some of the, the original studies were looking at both HER2 overexpression as well as HER2 mutations. They were kind of a little bit of a basket case. And, you know, I think, excuse me, the response rates in that HER2 amplified state, state are not quite as good for various reasons. So to me, this is better than anything else that we've seen. Uh, do you want to talk briefly about poziodinib? I mean, poziodinib is a drug, if you haven't heard of before, it's an oral TKI. It was originally designed for both EGFR and exon 20 uh, insertions. In fact, I think one of the first studies came out of MD Anderson. It was like, actually changed the way we thought about it. The initial response rate of poziotinib was, I think, 70%. If you look at that first phase one study done by John Hamack, and everybody was going up in arms. And I now I laugh, I call it the MD Anderson effect, because every time they do an update to the study, the response rates drop. And I think we're now in the 20% range uh, or even less 
for that HER for the EGFR exon 20. But it's kind of made a little bit of resurgence in this HER2 exon 20. Uh, I think there's a couple of things, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about the data. There's a little bit of more excitement about a TKI because we're hoping there's some CNS activity. And CNS activity is an important endpoint, A, because a lot of these patients have CNS mets. And B, the field has evolved to the point that CNS penetration is a very important thing, is one of the things we ask almost all the time. I remember reading that paper, I think it was 2017, uh, Nature Medicine and John Hamack's group, you know, you're right, you know, 70%, or it was a beautiful paper, three clinical models, as well as patients treated, I think 11 patients or so, seven, eight of them had a response. And that's really what piqued my interest in the EGFR HER2 exon 20 space back then. Uh, and then in 2018 at World Conference Lung Cancer in Toronto, you know, John Hamack got on stage, presented this data, 55% response rate with a durability, I think the PFS was in the five to six month range. And I, I thought this was a sure bet. Uh, it wasn't until later presentations, you know, 2020, and we've been involved in this study for full disclosure, uh, we saw the response rates come down to as low as 15%, I think more recently in that 19, 20% range. And like you mentioned, Alex, that's really due to toxicity. It's due to the, you know, HER2 and EGFR wild type inhibition. Uh, what I think is interesting about, you know, the trastuzumab and is that you don't see um, that you know, significant rash and diarrhea, as you see with some of the EGFR HER2 TKI. What about TDM1, right? I mean, that, that is the backbone of you know, trastuzumab versus What about TDM1 itself? What kind of response rates you're seeing there? Is that something you were using in clinical practice? That's also approved in breast cancer. You have access to that in your patients. Yeah, no, and it's actually, I think, was the first one on NCCN guidelines. You know, it's interesting. It ended up on NCCN guidelines kind of surreptitiously because nobody was really thinking about HER2. And I think there was only one paper that showed that TDM1 uh, had activity. And it kind of just literally flew under the wayside. You know, we, it was kind of this background noise until you saw some more of the data here and people really started to look at it. But I've used it in patients. I think the response rates are a little bit lower. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's about 20 to 40%, very small numbers. And it was not even, it was not even close to being a registrational study. I think it was more just completely exploratory that was, you know, dropped uh, uh, at that point. This, the, the, the pharma company was looking for other things, but it does work as well. And in some ways, it's a little bit easier tolerated because you're not dealing with a uh, antibody drug conjugate. Uh, again, I think for me, uh, this is now the standard of care and the standard bearer and TDM1 has kind of fallen a little bit on the wayside, as I think has happened in the breast cancer world as well. Agreed completely. I mean, the data for TDM1 alone was an IIT, you know, investigator-initiated trial developed by Bob Lee, um, really with Genentech, looking at the sort of opportunity for this agent uh, uh, moving forward in this space. And, you know, the data looked okay. Response rates, as you mentioned, in that 40% range, you know, PFS though, not great, right? So really not durable, only in that five, five to six month range. And, and I agree, I haven't really seen robust responses with TDM1 alone. Um, the opportunity for, you know, a guided uh, sort of opportunity to deliver chemo with this ADC, the trastuzumab drugs TCAN, to me is a lot more appealing, but even more appealing would be to potentially think about combination in the future uh, with a TKI. Yeah, so, you know, thinking about that as well, and I think a lot of the field has been very confused because remember today we're talking about these HER2 mutations and, you know, oncologists, we just think about HER2 amplification, right? IHC, one plus, two plus, or three plus fish, et cetera. So do you want to talk a little bit about destiny lung three and this HER2 overexpression uh, lung cancer? What are your thoughts there and how do you think that fits in? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, in clinical practice, we're not testing IHC. Are you testing IHC? It's not something that I do in practice. So, you know, to me, this idea of, you know, getting the immunohistochemistry back on 
you know, HER2 expression is going to be a tough sell. Whereas HER2 mutations, right, we're doing NGS on all patients. Alex, are you testing for this in the clinic? Well, you know, it's interesting. A couple of things. I have a good story since we're both in New York. I can tell stories. So I was a second year fellow. I'm in clinic with my lung cancer advisor at that point. I was doing sarcomas and lung cancer. Uh, and he goes, did you check for HER2? So somebody else, he goes, it's HER2 positive. Give him trastuzumab or septin. I'm like, is there data for this? This is, sorry, Josh, I'm going to date myself. This is 2004. And I'm like, I didn't know there was any data. I mean, back in the lung cancer world back then, insurance companies didn't care so much. You had nothing else to do. So, you know, they were positive. What the heck, right? There was no downside. and didn't have any clinical trials. Uh, I'm not routinely testing right now. We have a lot of clinical studies right now looking at this population. You know, the breast cancer world and other tumor types have gone back. You know, what do you do with these HER2 low patients? Because there's some thought there's some activity there. But I'm not routinely testing right now. Um, because I don't think it really changes anything that much. And I think the HER2 story for HER2 overexpression means a lot less than the HER2 mutation. There is a little bit of a hint of activity there, but it's not that true mutated driver that turns on that cellular signaling pathway. Agreed completely. If you look at the breast cancer world, I mean, you know, IHC of two plus, three plus, we see robust responses. You know, for this agent, even with HER2 one plus or negative, they're seeing responses. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that HER2 expression matters as much for this agent as we sort of thought it did in the past. But like you mentioned, in the lung cancer space, we're not commonly measuring, you know, her, you know, her to expression, nor do I think it's a major driver uh, of oncogenesis. I really think it's the HER2 mutations, particularly exon 20 insertion mutations uh, that are driving here. And, and, and again, I'm not as excited about this study uh, as I was about the Destiny Lung 01. I'm also quite concerned about the combination with Dervalumab, a PDL1 inhibitor, uh, given potential uh, um, immune-related adverse events. I think about this as a take-home message. You know, the, the HER2 mutated story is not unique to lung cancer. There's actually a lot of clinical studies now looking at some of these new HER2 agents, uh, looking at HER2 agents, I should say, in general, with HER2 mutations in any cancer type. Kind of looking, thinking, you know, thinking, let's think of this as NTRAC, let's think of this as not tumor specific, but across any tumor types. And it, there is clearly anecdotal evidence that it, that it works, it's just that people have to check and do those studies as well. I think in the interest of time right now, we should probably move on a little bit. Let's talk about HER3. So HER3 is an interesting compound. So it's a drug called patritimab deruxtecan. So you can tell deruxtecan uh, made by the same company, Daiichi Sankyos slash AstraZeneca, using the same warhead, but with different antibodies. And again, it's a reminder from our first podcast that you can almost make any antibody, any linker, any warhead and do infinitesimal combinations. It's kind of amazing. Uh, but now we're talking about HER3, and I think taking a step back, so now we're talking about HER3 and EGFR, right? So this study that they've done, patritimab deruxtecan, uses, is being used for second and third line non-small cell lung cancer, EGFR mutated uh, after they progress on TKI. So Josh, you know, when I first saw this study, I did a, huh? Wait, it's EGFR, we're thinking about HER3? Mechanistically, like, what's going on here? So you want to chat a little bit about that? Same. Yeah, I did the same sort of double take. And, and I remember, you know, in the audience, I think it was Passiani or Greg Riley back in 2019 at ASCO. It was the last ASCO in person. So it had to be 2019. And, you know, lo and behold, he gets up and, and talks about this drug. It's a HER3 ADC. And they're looking at it in post-progression patients on osimertinib. They have EGFR mutation. And my first question was, what's your biomarker? I mean, did you measure HER3 expression? And the answer was no, uh, this was not measured. 
Uh, but when you look at some of the preclinical data, you know, HER3 is highly expressed in patients with EGFR mutation. It's not clear why that is, uh, but, but, you know, this is a general uh, sort of good marker, in my opinion. It's different from a lot of the other strategies of looking at acquired resistance mutations. This is something that we think is a pan marker on EGFR mutant disease. So in that initial presentation, I think the response rate when the dose escalation was about 25%. And I said, uh-huh, you know, that's okay. Um, that was similar to what we were seeing in some of the MET amplified groups or C797S acquired resistance mutation groups. Uh, and we could talk about some of the other agents in this space, but we more recently saw data presented um, of the full set uh, of patrituumab drugs DCAN with a response rate of 39%, disease control rate 72%, with a median progression-free survival here of 8.2 months. So I think this data is real, and I'm actually quite excited about it. Um, now, how do we explain it biologically? I think is more difficult. What are your thoughts, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it overcomes a, a lot of the resistance pathways that we've seen. You know, a lot of the newer drugs, the TKIs, are looking at MED or C797S or some of these other secondary mutations. But this kind of trumps all that because it's a downstream marker. Whether or not the exact mechanism of action, I've heard a lot about this, is still a little bit unclear to me. Whether or not it's HER3 overexpression or you know, there's the, you know, heterodimerization, which you can now see. There's other drugs that are looking at as well. NRG1 is another example of that. Uh, but to me, it kind of overcomes a lot of that as well. So it's a very interesting compound. Uh, and as you said, the response rates are you know 39% and stable disease 45%. Then we have the Herthina Lung One study, I think currently recruiting, but I think you know we had it open and it just close to accrual and accrued like gangbusters throughout the world for obvious reasons. And I think it'll, you know, hopefully it'll be positive. It's getting to be a complicated area because A, there's a few monoclonal antibodies coming down this pathway right now. You know, we have other EGFR antibodies that are being looked at right now. Uh, amabantamab, uh, which has already been approved for Exxon 20, can it be used post-TKI? You'll have this one and you almost have a lot of different choices right now as opposed to, you know, in terms of what you do. And I think the ultimate question is, is, you know, after you progress on osimertinib, are we going to be giving people chemo or are we going to be giving people patritumab or a targeted therapy? There'll be an FDA approved label, assuming we get to that point. Uh, but I guess the real question is, you know, where do we go from here? And what are your thoughts about this and where the field is going? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I mean, this study, the cohort one, did require one prior line of therapy, either, you know, TKI or chemotherapy. Most patients were prior treated with the third generation EGFR TKI osimertinib. I believe the Herthina Lung 01 required prior chemo. I mean, Alex, maybe you can correct me on that. But that's an important question because standard of care in 2022 is third generation EGFR TKI followed by platinum doublet chemotherapy with, you know, platinum and uh, um, pemetrexid. So it's important to think about how this drug fits into this area. Now, there are many other drugs coming down the pike, as Alex, as you mentioned. I think it's great. I think it's great that we have potential many options for patients in this space, particularly looking at targeting different, you know, pathways. Um, so, you know, a patient who had amivantamab, for example, um, the EGFRC met by specific might still have a response to patritumab druxatecan and vice versa. So I think this is a win uh, for our patients in, in this setting. Um, I do think that they need to flesh out their biomarker a little bit more, and I think we need to better understand the mechanism of action before this is something that is prime time. But with a response rate of 39% in the you know, TKI refractory or third-generation TKI-resistant setting, that's quite impressive. Yeah, and I think, as you pointed out, we're not delving into the amivantamab data. Um, for those of you just curious, amivantamab, we talked, I just mentioned it briefly, EGFR bispecific, 
approved in Exxon 20. Uh, it was originally designed actually for EGFR, and they found more data in the Exxon 20 world, I believe. It's being combined actually with lizardinib, which is a TKI for some CNS penetration. Uh, but you're almost going to have so many different options for these patients, right? You'll have patritimab, you'll have amivancimab, lizertinib. I think they're all going to have good data, and I think it all some level will be approved, likely after chemo. Again, not 100% sure, but the Herthina 1 study, I believe, did require chemo, as far as I can recall. You're going to have too many options, and it's going to be, you know, how many ad boards of things you're going to get. They'll ask you, Dr. Sabari, are you going to give chemo? Are you going to give patritimab? Are you going to give amivancimab? And, you know, maybe we'll be doing some biomarker testing that may guide you, maybe not. There'll be TKIs, but, you know, it's great for our patients, right? I mean, these are patients that want more drugs. They want to stay away from chemo, and they tend to live a long time and do well. So it's going to be a great option for our patients as well. So, and then also we have other uh, antibody drug conjugates, conjugates. There's a theme here, datapotamab deruxtecan. So DATO-DXD, which is the tropion pan tumor one study, it evolved in a phase one study, you know, looking at patients uh, with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, and they just completed a accrual to a randomized clinical study versus docetaxel in the second line setting as well. So this is an antibody drug conjugate against trope two. So trope two is a pan tumor antigen. Uh, there's already an approved drug in this class called sesetuzumab. Sesetuzumab, govitacan, uh, I'm sure I said that wrong. Uh, I don't give it a lot, obviously. I'm not a breast cancer doctor, but approved in triple negative breast, and I believe in bladder cancer as well, now being looked at lung cancer. Uh, but this is another antibody drug conjugate. So trope 2 is a ubiquitous kind of molecule that sits on tumor cells, highly expressed on lung cancer cells. You know, unfortunately, there's not a good biomarker here. One of the things people have looked at in this study is, I mean, common sense, right? You have an antibody, I'm sorry, you have a, you have a molecule that this targets, you can measure it on the tumor cell. How does expression of the molecule on the tumor cell correlate with the response? And we haven't seen much of a correlation so far. So unfortunately it takes that nice biomarker out because of course, wouldn't it be great? Your trope two high, trope two medium, three plus, two plus, one plus, you're more medium or less likely to respond. That hasn't panned out. But the phase one, phase two study that was done uh, showed some really impressive response rates in a very, very heavily pretreated population. I think the median lines of therapy on that study was, I think, three to four. I mean, I think I, we were involved. I think I put somebody on with six lines of therapy and they responded. So uh, clearly impressive there. I think had some pulmonary toxicity as well. Josh, any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because our discussion so far has really been about targeting, you know, driver alterations, right? Um, or, or you know, using a biomarker to guide therapy. Here, this is different, right? I mean, trope two, as you mentioned, is just commonly expressed in epithelial cells, right? And malignant cells more commonly. So, you know, this is not anything specific to lung. I mean, we're looking at this agent in multiple different disease entities. And as you mentioned, you know, sastuzumab govitecan already FDA approved in triple negative and now bladder. So, so it works. Uh, the question is how to best utilize it in the lung cancer space. So we don't have a biomarker. You know, we're not measuring trope two expression, uh, and nor does it seem to correlate with uh, you know, response with trope two level. You know, all that being said, you can't negate that you're seeing decent response rates in patients who are heavily pretreated. Now, what is the comparator arm, in our opinion, clinically? For me, it would be docetaxel ramucirumab. So this is a patient who is driver negative. Uh, who's progressed on chemotherapy and immunotherapy, what do we have to offer them? Docetaxel ramucirumab, as you know, Alex, 23% response rate, and it has, you know, very poor PFS in that three, four-month range. It's one of the least 
therapies that I, I like giving because patients don't tolerate it well and, 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 and have not really great quality of life on it. So how would you stack this up? How would you stack up this agent, the, the you know, DATO DXD, as you mentioned, uh, compared to what we have standard of care now in the second line? So the standard of care is terrible. The standard of care, as you said, is I, I almost never give docetaxel. I always try and find a clinical study and I explain to patients, the responses you're transient, the drug is hard, you'll lose your hair for the first time. For most of our adeno patients, uh, Sway may be different. Uh, so to me, it's a no-brainer. And, and I almost use the analogy, you know, this drug was approved. Sorry, Josh, I'm dating myself again. This drug was approved with all we had was carbotaxel. I'm not convinced the data would have gotten approved right now. I mean, I think it was kind of approved in a, in a world where the studies were not nearly as well done. Nobody was looking at toxicity and said, shoot, you got nothing. Got to try something. And that's how it was approved. Uh, I'm not going to get into whether or not you should be giving ramucirumab uh, with docetaxel or not. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that are pro it. Uh, I'm not a big fan of it. It's, it's part of the approved label. The study here that it compared to did not use ramucirumab because it was an international study and not everybody in the world has uh, ram approved. But to me, this is, a, this is a different population, right? This is second line lung cancer for which the standard of care is very, very low. So the bar is low. So here you have something that has any decent response rate with, you know, at least as good as docetaxel with improved toxicity in my mind as a winner. Sasituzumab uh, is also being looked at for the same population as well. Uh, also embarking on a little study uh, right now to look at it. They, I think they have some pretty good early non-randomized phase one slash early phase two data as well. Not a surprise. It's a similar target with a slightly different side effect profile. So any, you know, I think we're almost out of time, Josh. Any parting thoughts you want to have about where this is going uh, right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting opportunity. And if I had to bet on something in the second line setting, uh, we've had a lot of failed IO combo studies. I think this looks to be more prime time than any of the other agents. I think, again, the toxicity profile we had mentioned with the other ADCs, you know, persists here, you know, particularly ILD pneumonitis. I think it does need to be watched for even more closely. These are patients who are heavily pretreated. These are patients who have, you know, prior IO exposure. Um, so th this is going to be important uh, to look at that population. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the bottom line is what an exciting time, right? I mean, we have, you know, we've talked today about three antibody drug conjugates, all of which are likely to get, I, you know, I'm going to bet at least two of them are going to get FDA approved and probably a third on that randomized trial. Uh, what a good time for our patients, right? And it's also a little bit exciting too. I mean, the world is focused so much on targeted therapies, right? Uh, but the fact that you have, you know, data DXD, you know, we're not talking about a targeted therapy anymore. This is going to be pan lung, pan tumor population, most likely. It'd be great to have a target, but those patients need something too. So it's really good time. And I think really great for our patients and what an evolving field right now. So, well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I had a really good time talking to you, Josh. It's always good to catch up uh, and I hope uh, to catch up with everybody soon. Alex, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors for look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.